Today marks the launch of the My Perfect Console Patreon. There are all sorts of benefits to becoming a Patreon supporter. You will, for example, receive guest announcements exclusively long before the general public. You will have the opportunity to pitch questions to select future guests and download bonus episodes in which guests answer those questions. You have the chance to vote in the My Perfect Console Best Console of the Year knockout competition starting later in 2023, in which you, the listeners, will crown the very best console of the year. Lots more to come to the exclusive members-only My Perfect Console Community Lounge, where you can meet other listeners, and, of course, at some point, the chance to purchase a mug or a sticker, something like that. Head to patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsult and get involved. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is a multi-award-winning stand-up comedian, actor and writer. Born in Edgware, London, to a Punjabi Sikh family, he was in his mid-twenties when he first tried stand-up. 
Five years later, he became the first British act to perform at the Caribbean Comedy Festival in Trinidad. Since then, he has been a guest panellist on 8 Out of 10 Cats, performed twice at Live at the Apollo, and is one of the most memorable contestants ever on the hit show Taskmaster, having appeared in season three. In 2017, he became the first British Asian stand-up comic to sell out Wembley Arena, and two years later, this record-breaking show was made into an Amazon Prime special and released around the world. Since 2021, he has been the host of the hit podcast, Podcast, in which he interviews comedians, and my guest is also about to start a month-long run at the Edinburgh Festival. Welcome, Paul Chowdhury. Good to see you, Simon. Nice to see you too. So, Paul, I've listened to your shows, I've read interviews with you, and I listen to your excellent podcast, but I still feel like you're a bit of an enigma. You don't give too much away. You know, despite the fact you're like firmly in the public eye, you're secretly quite a private person. Yeah, a very private person, uh, apart from when I'm performing. I'm not famous for being famous. Yeah, yeah. If, if that means something these days. You know, people are famous for just being famous. And you, sometimes I go on Instagram and I'm like, you've got three million followers. I'm, I just don't know who this person is. <laughs> yeah. And then I look at the posts and then I look at the posts and I'm like, I still don't know what you do. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure what's happened to, um, is it called a celebrity or? Yeah. Like you obviously, you, you've you got this podcast. And you never heard of me. Never heard of you. <laughs> <laughs> so who's this guy? Uh, why am I here? I've <laughs> <laughs> never heard of anyone. I mean, where does, uh, where does that come from? You you know, you're sort of um, not wanting to give much away. I mean, lots of your guests on your podcast mention the room in which you're recording now, which is quite, you know, there's like no belongings in it. It looks sort of like a hotel room. Is that, you know, you just, <laughs> just want to be a bit of a blank page so that the act is the main thing? Yeah, I mean, this is when we used to do it during lockdown in all the Zoom, but now I do it in the studio face-to-face. Right, okay. Yeah. At the global studios. But um, yeah, lots of people commented on this room, like Stuart Lee was talking about what's in the cupboards behind me. But um, I'm sure you don't really want to go into things like that. I'm sure that's not your guest concerns, lots of stuff. Like, if I didn't have these cupboards, it would be all over the shop. Oh, I see. Okay. It's just a tidying measure. Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. Just everything is just pushed into a cupboard. Yeah, yeah. So you're off to Edinburgh in a couple of weeks. I imagine you've done a fair few Edinburghs in your time. What kind of experience are you hoping to have there this year? Yeah, this is my 75th Edinburgh <laughs> year. I've been doing it for coming up to 76 years now. It's called Family Friendly Comedian. Yeah. I've been touring it around the country, extended a few times, and then... I'm uh, taking an hour's version of it to the Edinburgh Fringe at 9.40 at the Pleasance Courtyard Cabaret Bar. So, um, you know, I want to become a family-friendly entertainer and sit next to Holly Willoughby on this morning. Nice. On the sofa or CBBS or something like that. Some, something more mainstream than, as you say, I'm an enigma. The only way to get out of that is to become a family-friendly entertainer. A bit like Hugh Edwards, <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. So I'm interested in that title, Family Friendly, because, you know, early in your career, I think you were labelled as a, as an Asian comic, but it seems to be like your, you know, your material is always pushing against pigeonholes. You mix in elements of your Punjabi heritage, but you also do a lot of material that's obviously aimed at white people. And is where you sit in the comedy landscape something you've considered lots in your career? I mean, I think family family friendly comedian is, is uh, you're being a bit ironic there, but, uh, you know, is it? Broadening your appeal, something you've considered lots. Yeah, well, another journalist didn't get the irony behind the title. Um, I spoke to on Times Radio, so they were like, "But, but you're not family friendly." But, but that's the joke, right? So the problem, 
People don't actually get what jokes are these days. You have to, when you have to explain a joke, <laughs> there's no joke. Sure. So when you talk to lots of the journalists out there, they're like, but, but why are you calling yourself a family friend? But you're not though, are you? Well, that's the joke. It's an ironic title. Yeah. My last show was called Live In It. Now, In It isn't even a word, but you know. But why did you use, can you not spell? And Before that's PC's World, mm-hmm. which was a take on PC World, but I'm, PC, oh, but but PC, it's PC world. Why have you called it like that? Because that's my initial. And then what's happening, white people? Before that, but why have you titled it "What's Happening, White People"? There's all people, you know. So people don't get jokes anymore. It's a very difficult thing. It's becoming very extinct comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, where do you go ahead? Go ahead, Simon. Well, I was just going to say, where are you most comfortable? Because you, I mean, I've heard you talk before about how, like, earlier on in your career, you would have, like, different sets that you'd do for different audiences. Like, if you were in a, you know, doing a show in a sort of black crowd predominantly or an Indian predominant crowd, um, I guess, you know, some of those, or at least I hope, like, some of those barriers have come down a little bit and people are a bit more mixed in now. Is that is that your, your sense? Yeah, when I started in mid-98, there was just, you'd call the mainstream circuit. So I just do the clubs, comedy clubs. And um, there was a black circuit. Now, um, lots of black acts have uh, transcended beyond that circuit and hit the mainstream, but they didn't see there was opportunities for them within the mainstream. So they that circuit became a thing, kind of emulating what the American clubs did. And their circuits for different communities in America. And over here, there wasn't really an Asian circuit. Uh, I actually probably was one of the first British Asian so I'm Brit- I was born in London. I was described as a British Asian comedian, which was because there weren't many of us around. Now there's fortunately much more diversity, probably not as much as you'd think, but um, of different race, genders, orientations. And, and that's great because it really opens you up to the world. And I can't understand when people have a problem with anyone from a different diaspora to themselves. If. Unfortunately, it's kind of the world we live in where people don't like change. And that's the, uh, human history's evolution. Mm-hmm. I guess when you were performing material to some of those more distinct communities, though, you could be perhaps a bit more precise with some of your jokes because you know that that community is totally understands the language and the the nuance of what you're talking about. But when everyone gets a bit more mixed in together, do you find that you have to do a bit more explaining or you have to just do things that are a bit more general? My crowds are great because I have people from all different races, sexes, genders um i mean literally ages from 15 to 95 sometimes and when you have everyone in the same room you can tend to do a lot more rather than when you have one particular type of person in the room so i think i have one of the most diverse audiences within the stand-up scene at the moment (laughs) in england anyway so that's great because uh, i can really expand it And, and and when you make comparisons or talk about different cultural Essentially, we're all the same, hey, hey. is kind of the point. But um, it's great when you have that. Uh, yeah, and as as you were saying back when I did the Black Circuit, yeah, you could do the stuff that was tailored towards that audience or an Indian crowd. But then when you have an Indian crowd, you can't necessarily do everything because you could have Asians, you could have Pakistanis, Indians, Muslims, Bengalis. So you've got a mix of different types of Asians mm-hmm. in the room. You're not just one particular type. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been to India a few times as a journalist and... There's almost more diversity in India than there is in the UK in the sense of like you can go from one area to the next and people speak completely different language, completely different cultural touchstones and all of that. So, yeah, I see what you mean. It's almost like the more granular you become, the more 
disparate people are, right? Well, yeah, even, you know, trans people were in India years ago mm -hmm. and it was a normal thing. You'd, you'd see you see lots of trans people and, and now it's like it's a big thing now and it's a conversation piece but it's been going on in India for years <laughs> and it's never and it's and it's kind of been accepted interesting so you uh yeah you mentioned there that you grew up in Edgeware you were born born in London but uh, and your your father moved to the UK I think in in the 60s what role did uh, video games have in your in your childhood when you're growing up were you were you allowed a console and all of that stuff as a young immigrant family or or was that something frowned upon as it can be sometimes oh it was uh, very embraced in my household my dad bought me a zx spectrum uh, you're probably too young to remember those i remember those yeah yeah <laughs> it was a computer with a rubber keyboard and uh when you play daily thompson's diet decathlon isn't it decathlon yeah, yeah. Uh, and then there were the two keys and you said that was running you know left, uh, up and down or left and right so it was two buttons you'd push it and then the space bar was the jump yes so you right. do the hurdles and, and then you keep your finger on it and jump so, and you basically smash the keyboard in yeah yeah and then there was the bbc console uh, but then you'd have to load the games up with a cassette Yes. It would take maybe half an hour for the and then sometimes if there was an error yes. it wouldn't work. It would fail wouldn't it for some reason. It would fail and then you'd have to reload it. So it could take you around an hour to even start to play a game. And you're like, you, you feel if you hit the jackpot once it loaded. <laughs> it was a tough, tough time. And, and then I went from the Spectrum and then uh, I went on a family holiday to to New York and I was at my cousin's house and he had the, um, the Super Nintendo. Yeah. And I think it was the Nintendo. It was the original Nintendo not the Super Nintendo, with Duck Hunt and and Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, etc. Yeah. Now, which now, the games you can get on your on your phone. But back then, prior to that, you couldn't get the arcade equivalent. Mm, yeah, right. Apart from the Neo Geo, I don't remember that console. Yeah, Neo yeah. Geo was around £100 back then, which was very expensive, but the games were around £100 each. Yeah. So that was as close as you could get to an arcade. I was younger thinking, wouldn't it be great one day this could be in your house. And so people would buy the arcade machines and put them there, the massive, and they have one game on it. Yeah. And and I think, oh, it's a distant dream for me yeah, yeah. that I could have these kinds of games within my own house and play them at my own. And now look where we are. It's, uh, it, we're living in the future. Yeah, got it all in your pocket. Every arcade game ever made or whatever. So. <laughs> They're not as good on the phone though. There's something oh, yeah. about a controller. Yeah. Like a no, I'm not saying like the Logitech controller that they use on the submarine. No, it's not that kind of controller. I'm, I'm saying like an Xbox or a PlayStation controller. Mm, yes. You know, they got control something about having that. And I mean, this is a little bit of personal information about myself. When I was 17 in the early 90s, I started a small business where I would import the Super Nintendo from Hong Kong. No way. And it would sell them on CNVG, it was a magazine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember CNVG? Yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. Computer and Video Games, it was called, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and you'd pay £100 per advertisement, and I'd sell, so I'd import this. At that point, I I knew that this console and gaming was potentially the next big thing. Yeah. I, I felt that was going to be a thing, so I'd import Super Nintendos and Sega Mega Drives from Hong Kong because they weren't readily available here. They're only, only on Before import. they were out? Yeah, before right, they okay. officially... Cause, Hong Kong used to get consoles quite a well, well. I don't know if it was years, but it was a considerable amount of time before England. Yeah, yeah. So we were quite far behind within the gaming world, 
and then I'd import them. So I'd spend all my money to import them and then sell them on at a slight profit, which I couldn't really afford to even import maybe three consoles at the time because there was import duties and taxes. Sure. Uh, and then uh, I thought, and that was that during the days of Shinobi and on this Sega Mega Drive. Mega Drive, yeah. And um, uh, what was that game with the fast cars and Super Nintendo? So you, you, I'd sell it with a game mm-hmm. or you'd pick a game. I think it was the F-Zero. F-Zero, yeah, yeah. F-Zero. And... Um, so I I do that and I started that as a small business and then I because I, I, I knew that this gaming that's kind of what the world I wanted to go into gaming is the next big thing this is going to take over the world and then my uncle found out I was doing this and said what are you what are you doing wasting your time and money on these games <laughs> bad advice and, and shut shut the business down no way oh no so just uh, <laughs> give it back sell it get what this is a waste of time. It's a waste of time. It was my dad was quite supportive, but my uncle was like, no, this is rubbish. But he was a businessman, so he just thought I was just talking rubbish. He didn't realize I had this vision. Yeah. And I knew that, ga- and now gaming is bigger than Hollywood films. Yeah, so there's a whole other time timeline where you're like the the owner of game in the high, high street or something. It was called, my business was called Choice Consoles. Right, no way. Huh. How much money were you making on each uh, Super Nintendo that you sold? Oh, uh, not much. No, right. So I'd, you'd advertise, on, so I'd got a little office in my dad's house and you know, people would go to CNBG and then call me up and then potentially, but they, they, it was about 350 quid back then. Yes. That's a lot of money in 1991. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then, that was the console and you couldn't get it mm-hmm. apart from going to Hong Kong and then coming back with a console. So the, the margins were very minimal. Yeah, yeah. I knew that, but I, I just knew that this is where the world is going. But nobody else, and when you're seven, nobody believes you. Yeah, right. That's uh, that's a shame, isn't it? You know um, you know Charlie Brooker, the c- comedian writer of yeah. Black Mirror? I think he was one of the co-founders of CEX. Oh, right. You know that shop that's all around? So I think he still perhaps owns it or maybe sold a share or something. Really? I'll have to fact check that, but I think so, yeah. So. yeah I know I know Connie Huck. Um, yeah, follow each other on Twitter I know right yeah met her a few times so yeah because he's around probably a, a few years older than me but that would have been around the same time almost the birth of the revolution now obviously and I've owned most consoles over the years uh, even to the oculus uh, virtual reality units and I'm quite quite looking forward to see what Apple do with their yeah right the VR unit yeah expensive though but Right, well, Paul, we should get to your first choices. I've asked you to pick the five games that you want to put on your perfect console. Um, do you want to tell us about your first game from 1984, a game that uses a light gun, if I remember correctly? What's, uh, what's this one and why do you love it? Well, that was Duck Hunt. So you'd have this controller, which was a gun, which was connected to the Super Nintendo. Mm. Uh, NES, yeah, yeah. The NES. And then you'd shoot these ducks that were just flying around the screen, which was, like, it was mind-blowing because you think, how is this managing to work? Yeah. How are they doing this? This is just a normal TV, and TVs weren't great then. Yeah, it was like magic, wasn't it? It was like magic. It was like, how is this possible? Pretty boring game. It gets boring after a while. Yeah. But the fact that you can actually shoot the gut the ducks on the screen on your own TV and I thought when I go back to England I want to get a Nintendo and then my parents took me there for Christmas to uh, bring across shopping centre and 
Bought a Nintendo. Nice. Uh, yeah, and it had the that little dog that pops up. Yeah. Is it when you shoot one or when you miss one and he sort of giggles, doesn't he? But holds his paw up to his mouth. Yeah, when you lose a round. Yeah. When you lose a round, that's it. I think you can now, uh, I don't know if you can get that on your phone because obviously the, the gun element isn't there. Yeah, it'd be too easy probably. You just tap the ducks as they fly past. <laughs> and then there was a robot game as well, which I got, but that wasn't as interactive. That wasn't great. Oh, so, with the physical, what was it called? Ro- Rob or something? R-O-B or something? Yeah, it, that just didn't never work properly. <laughs> <laughs> but just the, sat in the corner. But the gun, I think their, their vision was to, um, to have lots more interactive games for the Nintendo. Um, and look where they are now. Mm-mm. Yeah. So let's uh, let's go back to your story then, Paul. You, um, yeah, like I said, your your dad moved to the UK in the sixties and became a bus driver, I think, before he then bought and run a news agency, which was sort of a, I guess, a common trajectory for people immigrating from India and Pakistan at that time, wasn't it? You know, I've read before that you, you know, you were you di- you didn't feel particularly welcome, like maybe in in the UK when you were growing up. I know that your your dad was uh, a victim of a knife attack and things like that with your uncles. What what effect does it have on uh, you as a young person when you're growing up in a place where you feel unwelcome and targeted? Well, um, I don't know about feeling unwelcome because I was born here, so um, it, there's nowhere I could go back to. No, so sure, I yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just didn't quite understand being unwelcome because. It was a weird time because uh, I was born in the 70s and uh, my dad came in in 64 and that was off the back of the Enoch Powell Rivers of Blood speech at this time. And and it was not too dissimilar to certain sentiments today where people would want that generation, uh, Windrush era yep. as well. A lot of Jamaican people came at the time and there was an Irish. There used to be signs on accommodations when they were trying to rent no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. And that, that was quite common. Jeez. Perfectly legal perfectly legal and sitcoms would use language that you wouldn't even be able to use on a podcast today as punchlines and you know it wasn't there were there were points where some of us didn't make it and there were points where you know there were there was violence involved um there used to be skinheads around at that time uh national front groups so quite hard right extremist organizations you know I'd, i'd been victims of racist uh racial attacks and Lots of family and friends. Unfortunately, some of us didn't make it. But um, oh, jeez, you know, it's it's uh, it, it yeah, it makes it makes you question humanity. And uh, growing up, I even slightly in my mid-teens, uh, early to mid-teens, but even back then when I was younger, I'd watch a lot of comedy on TV. But the obviously at that time, it was mainly white men that were <laughs> born comedy. And I hope, hopefully, we've moved on slightly since since those times but it's kind of unfortunately it's transcended and and has a different form racism i think is uh it's still quite rife but it's got a different outlet yeah and now with the birth of other forms of mediums you have lots of right-wing channels and it's still there but it just it it festers in a different way Mm, yeah yeah and as you say like when i was described as a british asian comedian which uh I never. I just kind of just thought of myself as just just a bloke who would go to school as someone like you. We've just been mates. Yeah. We wouldn't. We wouldn't. I wouldn't think. I wouldn't think. You know, Simon's white and I'm Indian. We'd just be, hang out. Yeah. So it was when I entered the media, I realised. Oh, actually, this is this is. They need an identity. They need to put me in a box slightly. So that's kind of the box I try and break when I do stand up. Yeah. Because it, people do. They say when you're on TV or something. 
the first few seconds is judging your appearance and uh, and that's your identity to people in general in life is we judge we do judge books books by their cover yeah 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 indeed um we don't have to talk about this of course but i did read in a in a piece in the guardian that your your mother died when you were really young that's a that's a massive sort of thing to happen in any young family you know how how well was your dad able to manage with that and how did that affect you in the years that followed yeah it was a tough time it, yeah i was five five years old and uh you know i've I've had lots of losses in my life um even over the past couple of years where i lost my my, my dad remarried and that was my my second mum when I lost her during the pandemic. It was a tough time. And I'm sorry. My dad last year, my dad. So it was, um, you know, it's uh, it makes you question life in itself and makes you think this is a very fleeting moment we live in. And, uh, you know, it's just every day you've got to kind of try and make the most of it. So, you know, I'm not referring to myself or as a victim or anything i'm sure people have gone through tough times out there so it's it's how you deal with those tough times which is that which is un, unfortunately the tough part i mean yeah, ironically that's the tough part is how to deal with because one day we won't be here and uh make the most of it while we can yeah it's just every day yes indeed right paul let's come to your second game then um which is from 1987 a uh, boxing game. Tell us about tell us about this one. Punch out. Well, Mike Tyson's punch out was another huge game, and that was one of the first endorsements with a sports person so he managed to get it, this deal which will move on to another game later on they tried to use his licensing so this was obviously the boxer at the time it was the world champion and it was called but then they called it Mike Tyson's punch out and there was a licensing thing so yeah. they paid him quite a lot of money and he was endorsing the game so you it was a great game actually uh, one of my favourite games I couldn't stop playing it until I completed it the, I mean, the graphics were groundbreaking for a Nintendo. Yeah, you sort of see the other character, don't you? You're looking over the shoulder of your boxer, and then you can sort of duck and weave, and then you choose when to when to strike, can't you? It's like got a really iconic look, I'd say. Yeah, the, it was the uh, PO, it was like a POV shot. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> now POV hadn't been around before that, really, at that point. So it was a POV boxer which was you, you were this little character, so they made out that you were this small boy. Yeah. But it was, the only reason for that was because it was a POV game, <laughs> yeah. so you could see the other opponent. And it was quite simple. And and the music, the characters were so defined, and at the end, you essentially fight the world champion. But then if you worked out the moves, they were always, all characters have the same move, you just move out of the way at the right time. Yeah. People still watch these on YouTube and just watch people complete the game. Wasn't it PewDiePie that just films himself? So it was a yeah. YouTuber. Just, PewDiePie, yeah. yeah. And made millions just out of filming himself play games. Yeah, I mean, well, that's sort of what Twitch is. The whole like platform is uh, just people playing games while other people spectate, right? Yeah. What a, what a lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. I'm having to go out and tell jokes to room 
sort of people that these guys just aren't playing games and getting paid millions. Yeah, you could just be at home watching, playing, playing punch out. Yeah. While people, while people donate you five pounds. Unbelievable. It's unreal. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Isn't it? So you, you were, I mean, you talked a bit about like how you were entrepreneurial and setting up this import business in your teenage years. But um, I heard you on your podcast, you're talking to uh, Jamali Maddox about while you were at school, you sort of experienced this anti-encouragement almost from teachers, like being told that, you know, you would never amount to anything and stuff like that. So how did you, how did you fight against that? It seems like you were clearly had an entrepreneurial instinct and wanted to get things done. Did you feel that uh, them telling you that you weren't going to get anywhere made you fight harder? Well, at that time, you don't quite get life um, at the age of 14, 15. So it's tough. Right. It's a lot tougher because <laughs> um, then you actually believe them. It's when you get a bit older. Uh, at that time, I wanted to get into the media and it wasn't an actual career right. option. Like as in to be a journalist, you mean? Yeah, they'd say, look, these professions are not, you know, we're talking about the late 80s, early 90s. I'd say no, late 80s when I was at school, that they would just say, look, this, these aren't career paths that we would, uh, and this was a, a normal, like not a private school. <laughs> to private schools, a different mindset is instilled within the youngsters so that you can achieve anything. <laughs> yeah. But public schools are like, this is, we just wouldn't recommend you even try to become a journalist there's not much money to be earned or a presenter or an actor um forget stand-up stand-up wasn't even a career path <laughs> it's later on in life you realize that you potentially you have i think everyone has the ability to be whoever they want to be but it's just tapping into your inner inner genius really yeah, yeah. i'm sure everyone has that ability to do to do something that will fulfill their and now it's much easier because you do have broadcasting outlets that you can just do it yourself. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, true. You know, back then, there was Gake, there was three or four channels. Yeah. But video camera was thousands and thousands yeah, of yeah. pounds. Yeah, it means, you know, there's a big uh, big hurdle for anyone wanting to get into it at that time that just doesn't really exist in the same way now. Yeah. So you, you, after you left school, I think you got a job at Dixon's, which you once described as your worst job ever. What, what made that such a rough time? Yeah, and I used to work at Marble Arch when I was about 17. I used to work at Dixon's and Marble Arch. Uh, and that was a tough job, the retail. 
it was the flagship branch. Yeah, right in, in the centre. Right Gosh. in the centre, yeah. Uh, and now I think it's like next to the, I don't know what it is now, because most of the Dixons have closed down apart from the airports. And it is. Uh, so it's Curry's PC's world now. Yeah. And yeah, there was lots, I was young and there was lots of bullying by other staff members because I was the younger one there and, you know, trying to make so, maybe I was seen as a threat to them because I was so young and, and they're very bitter about where they are in in their lives and it was kind of taken out on me to a certain degree but um, you'd work on commission and the commission was like 0.001%. Really cool. You get, you get London waiting and I think I was getting paid full time about £17,000 a year or something. Right. Mm. You know, you can't even live on, on that even back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless you live at your parents' house. So, um, yeah, so, uh, and I, I kind of used to work on the gaming unit as well. Oh, you did? So, yeah. So, well, you kind of work everywhere, <laughs> apart from when there's a massive sale and then the other uh, staff members will try and nick it off you. So you can go upstairs, because upstairs was the TVs and and the big high-end. So downstairs was the slightly cheaper stuff, apart from the video cameras, but you weren't allowed to sell them because they were too expensive. Oh, right. So everyone, like the senior staff, get to sell the high-ticket items mm. so they get a good commission. Yeah. Yeah, now there's, I don't think they work on a commission basis. But what they try and do is sell you an extended warranty. So they would really encourage you to sell that extended, because barely, I think it was probably not correct in saying this, but you'd have to look it up. But the percentage of people that use or take up the extended warranty or, or use the benefits of it are like 1% to 5%. That's where their margins are in, in selling you the extended warranty. So like really... Even now, I've just had a call from Curry saying, oh, do you want to get an extended warranty? And I'm like, I, I know how this works. I know how the game works, yeah. Yeah, you know how it works. If it doesn't break down in the first year, pro- no, don't take this as as me, because, you know, I don't want anyone out there to say, oh, well, I didn't take an extended warranty because of Paul. <laughs> uh, it's it's kind of, it's a gamble. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, you're, you're throwing, it's a gamble, and it's unlikely, very unlikely to go like a TV. Yeah, yeah. So how did you get out of that situation then? You, I think, am I right in saying your initial sort of move was into becoming an actor and doing um, extra parts and things like that? Is that what 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 got you to leave Dixon's? Oh, it was it was. To, uh, then I'd work at all the other branches. So I'd not only work at, so you'd end up working at different branches at the Strand, uh, High Street, Kensington. I'd serve a lot of celebrities, uh, Brian May from Queen, and uh, all, all the stars would come into that one. But it was a tough environment, uh, retail, especially if you're working there full time. This um well, also been a turmoil within the staff and now retail has changed. The high street was the thing back then, so it was always packed. Yeah. Yeah, this is before online. And then before that, actually, even when I was fifteen, I'd work in on Tottenham Court Road. Uh, Tottenham Court Road used to be in England the the street that you'd sell electronics goods. Now it's there's barely any electronic shops there, but I'd work at Goldtronics and they'd give me fifteen pound cash a day, and you know three four, three pound four fifty at that at the time was probably the travel card, and then lunch was another three quid four quid, <laughs> so it was well, pointless. But it was a job, and now they've got rid of all those electronic shops because the that was when the online trade has killed them all off. Yeah. and now London's great because you can go to London and go to. Uh, one of hundreds of sweet shops. <laughs> world of sweets or whatever it is. Yeah, world of sweets. Definitely like, some kind of tax dodge, isn't it? But Well, it's apparently run by gangsters. It's, oh, okay. Yeah, let's go let's go and buy some 
who said, you know, let's go to London, let's go central London, well, let's go and buy some sweets. Let's go to all the sweet shops and buy these American candies for ten pa- ten pounds for a packet of crisps. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a big sort of expose waiting to be done on 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 all of those businesses. I think so. That's incredible. So, you, what, what was your kind of first first jobs once you get away from those uh, electronic shops? Well, then, yeah, then I went back to college and eventually um, I did a, actually did a computer science degree. Right. And I dropped, but I dropped out of that because my brother's a computer programmer, so he encouraged me to get into that. And then I managed to make some short films and did, I did this myself. And then that was a way in to get interviews for film schools. Got it, right. And then I eventually got a place doing a media film and TV degree in Hertfordshire. And then I did three years of a, a BA in media, film and TV. Towards the end of the degree, I started doing extra work on TV shows like Holby City and London's Burning and shows like that and and certain films. So I do that. And then when I graduated, I got my degree and I thought, I've always wanted to do stand-up. I wanted to do it when I was 17. So I'd, I'd just go there in the evenings and do gigs. And in the daytime, I'd do extra work that would fund that because you wouldn't get paid for doing stand-up. Right, right. Ah, that's a that's a fun setup, I guess, isn't it? Like acting on Holby City in the daytime, then going off to do a gig in the evening. Yeah, good times. Yeah, and that was the time they used to do, used to do top of the pops there at the same time. Oh, they did. Same... So you hang around for that. <laughs> uh, right, let's come to your third game then, Paul. So you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned that uh, this game tried to have Mike Tyson in it at one point. Tell us about it. What is what is it from 1991? Well, that was Street Fighter Two. Arguably one of the biggest games of all time and definitely the game that, that revolutionized the fighting genre. Mm. The arcade machines, you know, they had six buttons, so you had three for the punches, three for the kicks. Yeah, like medium and heavy, and you, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you'd never been you'd never seen a game with as many moves. They were very basic moves prior, like you'd get the punches, the kicks or the simple punch and the simple kick, whereas they kind of made it like a martial art, as close as you could get to a martial art anyway. Yeah. And the two-player version in the arcade, you would rarely, you'd have to queue up to play that game. There used to be one in the ship shop, so you'd have to wait for the other person to finish playing. That was how popular that game was. So that was, that was the arcade that you went to, the chip shop? Yeah, that, um, that was the only place that had it in the area. At the right, time. yeah, yeah. That was the only place that had Street Fighter 2 and it was like you'd never seen it it was you're probably too young to remember it being in the arcades and I remember I went to America to see some family when I was about 19 and even the, around the world it was the biggest game yeah. and there were people who were masters at it and I think they used to do tournaments as well that was one of the first games that had tournaments right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and now tournaments within gaming is, is huge, huge yeah. but back then 
back then it was nothing. Yeah, the six, the Street Fighter Six just came out a couple of months ago, and so it's all yeah, still still running, still massively popular, isn't it? Yes, it's it's, it's one of the yeah people the anticipation, and uh, Balrog yes was actually Mike Tyson, so that was my reference. So Balrog, as you can see, if you look at the character, it's it's almost identical, but they didn't get the licensing, so they call him Balrog. Uh, but I think they changed it because M Bison yes in Japan yeah I think they. Yeah, I think they moved the names yeah. around. So M. Bison was the other character. And then, but then you look at the characters now, you probably, uh, gaming is the only place where you can use stereotype and get away with it. Yeah, Street Fighter is particularly bad for that, isn't it? Yeah, like uh, like the character of um, Dalsim. And this is from India. And he's doing yogas, he's doing yoga in, in within this fight moves. Yoga flame, yoga fire. <laughs> yeah, and his stretchy limbs. And then they made films. The Kylie Minogue was in the film. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's su- it was such a huge game. And there's cartoons and yeah, it's 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 a world of its own Street Fighter and you, probably conventions. People dress up as as the characters from it. Yeah, such a such a huge game. It just got bigger and bigger as now in, in six the screens explode and yeah, it's just unbelievable moves. It was kind of a competition with that and Mortal Kombat. They were always competing. I don't think more, I was. I did like Mortal Kombat. I liked it on the PSP. I had it on that as well. But I don't think it was as good as Street Fighter. 2. No, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. It was sort of more notorious, wasn't it, for its um, screen street screen gore and all of that stuff. Mortal Kombat. Mm, that was much, which also became a film. Yeah, as well. Mortal Kombat. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you're um, you're doing these gigs, uh, and then you're doing your extra work in the day, and then these gigs. I I saw you say this is about 2012 that it took you ten years to become an overnight success. Mm. That's that's like often how it happens, isn't it? People plug away for ages, and then all of a sudden, everything start, seems to work. At what point was was it for you where you thought, oh yeah, I can make a living out of this? This is why this is who I am now. Well, that's the thing when you do, I'd say a success to get such. It's like TV spots here and there. But then, you know, you do five minutes, think, am I a comedian yet? Some people think, oh, I've done it. I've, I've done five minutes on stage. Then you do 10 minutes. And then the club sets were 20 minutes. So to make, to, to do the club circuit, you'd have to have a minimum of a good 20-minute set. And then they think, oh, have I now become a, a comedian? Then you get to half an hour. But then you can't go from 20, because in this country you do 20, potentially maybe half an hour in some clubs. But then when you do Edinburgh or a one-man performance... You have to do a minimum of an hour. Right, big jump up. There's a massive jump. There's no, there's very rarely any clubs that do the middle. And there was only one club, which was the Comedy Bunker in Ryslip, where you could do extended sets. So I could get to do an hour there. Yeah. So I used that space and then I'd book up little theatres up and down the country and art centres where I could do longer sets. Um, so while I was doing the clubs, I'd build up. So I think I believed I became a comic when I did my first hour, even though... I'd kind of, within two years, I'd broken into a comedy store in London who had a couple of clubs around the country and a club called Jonglers who were at a chain. So to make a living, you'd have to do at least, you know, a few gigs a week to um, pay the bills because the pay was, you know, you're doing club spots. So you're sharing the bill with three three other comics sometimes. Yeah. I guess, I mean, I, I go to quite a lot of live comedy, but I think there's probably far less opportunities today than there would have been even when you were coming up, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So I guess it's even harder for people to make that jump from like a 20-minute slot to an, being able to do an hour-long Edinburgh show. That's quite hard, isn't it? Very hard. It's very hard. Uh, but, but now people have the the online yes. access. So 
they can build up a slight following. Um, but I think the only place you can learn stand up is on a stage in front of yeah. real people. Unfortunately, uh, people don't want to use that forum as a learning curve because of all the views they'll get online. So, right, yeah, yeah. Y y you're either seeing great comics or pretty terrible ones now. There's nothing in between. Yeah, I guess that, like, why would I perform to 100 people when I can get 50,000 views on TikTok or whatever? Exactly. Um, but that's not stand up comedy. That's that's an edited video that you've done on your own in the bedroom. So, um, you know, learning stand up, stand up isn't something that you can just learn overnight. It's the stage time. I used to go and do two, two, three gigs a night. Jimmy Carr was doing two or three gigs a night with me, and I'd, I'd bump into him at the end of the night, had the same gig at the end. So it was, it was, we were both relentlessly just going to get stage time. Yeah. And that's the only place you could learn stand-up. Yeah, yeah. There's no shortcuts. You know, whatever your industry is, whatever your profession, you've got you to put the hours in, right? Yeah, and stand-up, you know, you have bad gigs. You try jokes that if, you, if you're being slightly more inventive, you're going to do things that don't work. People are going to laugh. People potentially will get offended. You're going to get backlash. And it's riding through the storms. It's a tough, yeah. it's a tough game. You have to have a hard shell to travel up and down the country for years on your own. But people think it's a social thing. It's not social. It's very it's a life of solitude to get to that. And now I do, you know, two-hour shows on tour. I, you wouldn't even dream of doing that when you're doing your first five minutes. Think, how, how does somebody do even do 20 minutes when you did five and now yeah. you do two hours to two and a half yeah, hour yeah, shows? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's not quite the same, but it's, uh, you know, I'm a writer and, you know, when you first do your, your first blog post or whatever that's like 600 words long, you're like, how does anyone ever write a book that's like 80,000 words long, but it's yeah. a similar thing, it's building up to. Well, it's basically what you're writing. When you do a show, it's, it's you're reading a book out. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> with live feedback isn't it <laughs> yeah so I, I mentioned in the intro that you uh you played Wembley a few years ago a massive achievement um you know if I put myself in your shoes though that's gonna that's, I would have been extremely intimidated how did you feel like leading up to that to that gig was it um, and what does it feel like when you walked out you know after all these years like you say driving up and down the country by yourself like a good moment it was a great moment actually um put it on sale on a Wednesday night which isn't the best night to sell 10,000 right. seats because you, you think, oh, you go for a, a weekend because <laughs> more people are likely to turn up. But it was a Wednesday. I was thinking, I'm not sure, you know, and, and tickets kept, uh, it kept selling. And it's never completely sold out because you're always going to get the odd one or two because nobody's, you know, you could get a group of two or three or, or five and then you'll get little bits. So, but it's considered a sellout after a certain point. Right, yeah. Like after a nine to nine and a half thousand. And then I went to see Lenny Kravitz uh, the week after, and uh, oh, same venue, same venue, same room, but not even around half the people I got. I was, I was, I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't believe I sold more tickets to Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> Take that, Lenny. They had, they had to, yeah, they had to curtain off certain areas. So, um, and I think he was on a, a Friday. It was a weekend. I can't remember. It was, it was a while ago. But um, yeah, when I walked out, it was, and also they're my fans, so. They'd probably seen a lot of them had seen my stuff or my first two specials. So that was live in it. That was the tour then, which I subsequently released on Amazon Prime globally. Obviously, edited in different regions because there are certain restrictions with uh, defamation laws in other countries. Like my Michael Jackson stuff had to get cut down because you can defame the dead in Germany. Oh, I see. Okay, you can't defame the dead in England. Right, right, right. 
in the Middle East. I think they, I don't even know if it got released out there because of censorship laws and freedom of speech. Different um, sensitivities. Yeah. Yeah. So when you real when you release something globally, it, there are, I think even in India, because I swear in Punjabi, and they'd never quite seen that. That maybe I think a lot of comics probably do it now, but I was probably the first to publicly swear in Punjabi or use that kind of language they'd never seen outside their own house. Oh, I see. Huh. Interesting. Right, Paul. Let's come to your your fourth game then. This one's from 1994. Um, I think you did mention it. Actually. It's a scrolling beat 'em up. Tell us about this one. This game was called Double Dragon. which was my favorite game at school. When this game came out, uh, this is a few years before Street Fighter 2 and Double Dragon, there was there were two characters. One of the girls, uh, like a girlfriend of the character got kidnapped, uh, gets kidnapped at the beginning and you've got to basically rescue her by the end, which is quite a, a generic formula to gaming. Definitely in the 90s, yeah. Uh, it was in the 90s, it was always a princess that had been kidnapped or a girlfriend that had been kidnapped but the moves were incredible and the characters and the graphics playing that in the arcade i, I used to even the music it the, they, they created music to the game there wasn't much music in gaming before that you know we're, we're not too long after like space invaders so so the jumps were miraculous and double dragon i always and i'm still trying to look for that on my on my phone, but you can't seem to find it in many places. Yeah, that style of game has sort of fallen out of fashion a bit, hasn't it? Though, where you're running along the uh, street, just beating up hoodlums and all of that stuff. Uh, you don't—they don't make those very much anymore. They don't make them, they? and also it's—they they used to get glitchy, right? Because it was 2D, but it was—it was 2D with a, an element of 3D. So there were people in the forefront and and behind the character. Yes, they'd get you, but you couldn't get to them. So it was quite an irritating game to play and then you'd fight every round would have an end of level boss so you'd have to beat up the, the little people first and then the end of level boss and then the boss would get harder and harder or he just turn up when loads of people turn up yes that's right yeah. and there was lots of weapons there were knives there were you know, throw knives at people and there's little splatters of blood and all these things hadn't been seen at that yeah, point yeah. which and it was just like but that was that was the sound. Remember that? Yeah. So when they fall, when they fall, that was the sound of someone falling over. <laughs> and it were just weird noises that um, you just imagine. Oh, that was somebody getting punched. Then they fall down. That's never left. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That was Double Dragon. Yeah, it's so funny those sound effects. They just get burned into your memory, don't they? Yeah, and and, and the music. Yeah. So so you, Paul, you had um, you've had quite like I oh, just oh, interesting like your image like your as in your physical appearance that you've done as you're in your stand-up because you had quite a clean cut look i'd say until about the time you did the wembley show um and then you got this like big beard it's a bit shorter now and then the, your um sort of uh mustache as well that's curled at the edges i think it's it's a pretty iconic look i think but i wonder like sometimes a big image change like that can you know accompany some other big change in a person's life was it was that the case for you or did you just fancy a change you know, I had that beard for like seven years or something, and then it got bigger and bigger. And 
then I I had the mustache, but you couldn't see it because it was disguised by the beard. And I just think it's quite important to that Madonna was probably known for this, and even a lot of the I kind of took it from a lot of those performers where they'd reinvent themselves every few years, and it refreshes you. It ref- you know. You, get a change and you look it's like getting a new haircut yeah 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 keeping that same look for years it gets a bit boring but then then people complain oh you should have kept it you should have done this so you're better without get rid of the muscle everyone's got an opinion on your right yeah yeah yeah. the pub so you just don't know what to what to do really yeah you can't listen to you can't you can't it's it's a difficult thing Uh, you know it was more stubble when i did live the apollo in 2012 then i had a long beard and then um yeah i've just uh, who knows what will happen tomorrow i just you always trying to make improvements but it just makes things worse well, I, I know we say it's like quite nice to do an image change when you've got a new show i guess it's like starting a new blank page or something isn't it feel like okay done that last thing let's move on well the posters now in edinburgh are the uh, i took that shot when i had a beard <laughs> and now i haven't got the beard and now people aren't going to recognize yeah. me yeah who's this guy well luckily because there's going to be so many posters all around the streets there's a massive poster campaign and then when they see me in the street, they won't even think it's me. I'm not one to, I'm not really a fame guy. I'm not the kind of guy, hey guys, look at me. I'm very famous. I want to be known for my craft and stand up rather than, hey, you know, I'm, you know, everyone's now famous, as we said earlier, famous for being famous and reality stars just occupy the space more than actors now. It's kind of flipped. You go to an actor's profile, like a, a good working actor, barely any followers. Because I must have been on Love Island yeah, millions. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of easier to be famous than it is to make good work, I'd say. It's a short-lived fame, though, isn't it? What do they do with it? But I wonder what they're going to do with it, because then what happens to those millions after a few years when things dry up? You know, they don't really do much. What do they do? I don't quite get what they do. Did you? So I mentioned in the intro that you did Taskmaster Season 3, which was like very well-loved, I think. You know, People love that show now, obviously, but people especially loved your um, your season and your performance on it as well. Yeah, did you notice a change after doing that show and like being recognised? And um, you know, I guess that's sort of reaching a different kind of audience, perhaps to your the one that you had previous to that. Well, at that time, Taskmaster had only been on one one series had been on, and that was on Dave, and it was a very new show. They filmed season two and three at the same time, and they were trying to work out which season would be broadcast as two or three. I think it was. Catherine Ryan season. Um, had you seen it when you went on it? I'd only seen bits of season one, so it hadn't quite found its feet because it, it takes a few seasons for series to establish themselves, and it's still a, a great season. The season one was great, and that was what kind of kicked it off. Yeah. And it was a great team to work on because I've known Greg and Alex Horn for the, since the circuit, so since the circuit days. So they said, "Can you can you come and do this show?" I'm not what show. Oh, some it's called Taskmaster. And I'm like, never heard of it. I <laughs> said, so, well, just come and do it and see what you think. We'll give you the travel money or <laughs> whatever. And now, and now it's like, it's the biggest show on Channel 4. Right, yeah. And that's when I should have done it. Yeah, yeah. I did it way back. Lots of the comedians who were on those early series, because you only got six episodes, didn't you, rather yeah. than like whatever they do now, 10, yeah. 10, yeah. Uh, and then I was at their table, actually, though this year at the Comedy Awards when they picked up the award. So it's good to, to to support them still, and yeah, I'm so happy that that show has become massive because Alex is such a got a great comedy mind and a really nice guy. And Greg, I've known obviously for years, has been on the podcast as well. Yeah, great episode that one. 
Yeah, yeah. Right, Paul, let's come to your your fifth and your final game then. So um, this one, I guess, is like quite close to you because your font on your current poster and on the podcast as well uses uh, tape. It's from this game, isn't it? So tell us about this one. Yeah, Grand Theft Auto. probably as again I've, I've kind of picked up some of the biggest games of all time a game by a company called rockstar which is based in actually in edinburgh their office is in edinburgh uh, everyone thought it was an american company but it's uh, and uh, it did come with a lot of controversy when it was released because it was one of the first games with a, a censorship by the bbfc because of the language content and uh, the graphic violence and the defense was, uh, yeah, it was um, it was just a game. But do people emulate these? Uh, unfortunately, you do now look at car chases and people always make a reference to this game. Yeah. And now it's gone on, the incarnations of this game have gone on to the point where uh, it's all done online now. Yes. We, so the one you're talking about, is this the very first like top-down GTA? Or, the, or do you mean the one where GTA 3, where you're running around and you can see the character? Yeah. Yeah, Top Down was uh, GTA, and GTA 3 was um, was the running around yeah. one. And that was, what was the first console that was on? I think PS2, that, maybe? That was PS2, and now we're on GTA 6. Uh, yeah, it's, well, yeah, it's coming at some point, yeah. See, 6 is coming, and that's all going to be online. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think, you know, with GTA 5, they made the, like, story campaign, but then they've made all of their money just from the online stuff that people continue to play, yeah. So. Yeah. I guess it'll have both, but... Yeah, and also, um, one of the first games to have celebrity voices yes. involved. Um, so a lot of, sort of Hollywood actors, Samuel L. Jackson, etc. And the opening sequences were yeah. incredible. Like, it's basically, you're playing a movie. So going from GTA to to where we are today, um, I, I want to see it involved. I want to see it in the Oculus world. That's where... It'll be intense. That's where it's going to get interesting. Once they start putting sensors on us, or, or the obviously you know, like putting little, you can attach things to you, can't you, in certain games? Yeah, and and you can feel the movements. Yes, that's when it's going to get a bit more scary and probably more realistic, where you get shocks or, you know, when a weapon's being used against you. We were going kind of into Black Mirror territory. Yeah, now, it is we? a bit. Yeah, yeah. You know, could could we enter a world one day when people get killed by playing games online? Some people did actually die, though, in China, didn't they? Like a guy was playing for hours on end. Yeah, South Korea. Didn't yeah. get any sleep. And uh, died of sleep deprivation. Yeah. Uh, it's incredible. We got to that point in human history. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, in the, in the internet cafes, we'll play for two or three days straight. And- no food, no drink. And the Oculus world is interesting because it's a virtual reality world. So people have tried to live in it. You've seen, I've seen videos where they try and stay in there because GTA was a world in itself but then you get to the edge of the world sometimes like off um, a bridge and it would stop so you can go beyond that at that time in GTA 3 but the missions were just getting harder and harder now it takes I don't know how many hours that game is now to complete so 
people say you can complete a game, but you can complete it in now in different ways. Yeah, I mean, you finish like the story, but then you've got, you know, they sort of make it limitless, the amount of stuff you can do. They're constantly bringing new missions out and all that to the online. So yeah. That's like the business model now really is trying to get, trying to make like video games into, I don't know, like an app that you would visit every day, like Instagram or whatever, and you check in for, for an hour or whatever. And yeah. Yeah. And I've had, I've had a lot of the, obviously the, the hard consoles and then the handheld consoles yeah. which is um you know i've tried to now later on in life is avoid console and gaming because it takes so much of your time you never write a joke or go to a gig <laughs> so yeah, it becomes your life it is a lifestyle yeah can do yeah yeah it's uh you're so big people are doing podcasts on people playing games now you're probably one of the first though oh yeah? no definitely not there's many many podcasts but is there first one with this format maybe oh maybe not <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Paul, let's look at your, your uh, console then. So we've got Duck Hunt, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, Street Fighter 2, Double Dragon, and GTA 3. Lots to be getting on with there. How are you feeling about your choices? Yeah, I was I was going to go more current and recent. And there's so many games over the years that it's hard to choose. It's like someone saying, what's your favourite film? Mm-hmm. And I, n- I never have the answer. Sure, yeah. I feel like I've got a favourite 10, 15, 20 films. There's not one film. There's not one favourite game. It's always depends on your mood. What's your favorite singer? What's your favorite band? There's never one. No, yeah. It's always the mood you're in. Um, sometimes you're not in a GTA mood. Sometimes you're in a Street Fighter Two mode. Yeah. And you, you just it's it's a very hard thing to pin down. To, luckily, you didn't say what's your you know a favorite favorite game. At least it's games. Yeah, well, and it's nice to like pick games where like you have where you've got memories attached to them and can sort of talk about those. So it's been great. Yeah. If I listen to uh, yeah, listen to your. Uh, music takes you back to that point right exactly and as i've said today these games have reminded me of of where i was in my life yeah at yeah. The time. yeah well we've learned all about your uh your console import business so someone can update your wikipedia now <laughs> well i don't even know if that wikipedia is real it says i was born in in bedford oh really it's it's all i don't know who's written this stuff i'm after i'm after to get somebody to edit yeah, that. yeah yeah or, or, well when when whoever adds in your console business to your wiki they can they can change that for you too for <laughs> sure uh, right, Paul, we need a name for your console. What would you like to call it? So I've got my own console. Yeah, this is your console with your five games on it. And uh, yeah, we need a name. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's um, interesting because you can actually get now the Nintendo with most of the games on it. The NES. Yeah, yeah, NES Mini they get, or whatever. NES, NES Mini, Mini yeah, yeah. which is about that big and you can take it around to hotel rooms and yeah. stuff. Nice little thing you can just have, have, which is probably why you can't get them on your phones because the license. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that you don't have the technology, but I'd maybe call, maybe name it after my business, Choice Consoles. Perfect. <laughs> so I knew this would come in handy one day. Yeah, we can show your uncle that he was wrong all along. Yeah, uh, I don't even think they were impressed with it. See, my, my direct family were fine with the comedy, but it was other members of other extended families that were like, what is, what's he doing? And the same thing happened with that. But then when I got a bit older, I, I had the power to, to continue and, and follow my own dream yeah, rather yeah, than right. somebody else's. Yeah, well, well, when you can point to Lenny Kravitz and go, look, I'm bigger than him, what do you want from me? They'd probably say, who's Lenny Kravitz? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Paul, it's been great to chat to you. Thanks for being so open and... Yeah, for sharing your memories. I really appreciate it. It's been, and I'm a big fan of your work well, as well. So, oh, thanks, Simon. I, I, I really do hope all five listeners uh, enjoy this episode. <laughs> uh, listen, it's something to build on, okay? All right, Paul, take care. And I, I hope it goes well at Edinburgh. Yeah, do come to the show if you're up there.
Just to quickly clear something up, there are in fact more than five of you listening to this. In fact, six months into my perfect console's life, we're well on our way to 200,000 downloads. Or as I like to put it, uh, 20 sold out nights at Wembley Arena, Paul Chowdhury. <laughs> of course, like none of those people actually bought a ticket and most of them are, it's the same people from night to night. But you know, let's not dwell on that. Um, anyhow, thank you so much to my guest, Paul Chowdhury. Um a bit like Phil Wang is actually his actual name is uh, Phil Wang. Uh, Paul's first name is actually Tosh Paul, uh, but uh, I think at school he was known as everyone called him Paul, so that's what stuck. Um, but anyway, really grateful to Paul uh, for coming on the show. As as you might have guessed from that, he is uh, probably not an avid listener. But, uh, I'm very grateful that uh, his his people reached out and asked if he could come on. And uh, you know, I love Paul's work, and it was uh, great to be able to talk to him. As I said right at the start of that interview, my very first question: um, my sense is Paul is quite actually a private person, and even on his own podcast, gives very little away. Um, so I think he actually gave us quite a lot of insights into his life certainly before before comedy um i don't think he's talked about setting up that uh, super nintendo mega drive import business ever before and uh, not about the time that he had at dixon's either so yeah grateful grateful to paul for talking about that even though i think he to a certain degree remains something of a closed book Right, a, full, a few points of order to talk about. Early, uh, when, when Paul was discussing his burgeoning import business, I I said that Charlie Brooker, the uh, the comedian, writer, creator of the Black Mirror Netflix TV series, was one of the co-founders of Kex, C-E-X, the high street um, chain where you can trade in your old DVDs, video games and uh, and consoles and things. I went and fact-checked that it is true on uh, CEX's own website, uh, webuy.com. Uh, there is a page dedicated to CEX history and it says here, um, started by Robert Dudandy, Paul Farrington, Hugh Mann, Charlie Brooker, Ollie Smith and Oliver Ball. So yeah, Charlie was involved in that. I'm not quite sure how involved he was in that enterprise long term or if uh, I don't think he's still involved in it, uh, to be honest. Uh, I don't think you can expect to hand over your old Nokia and get a trade-in price from Charlie Brooker on a Saturday in Chelmsford High Street or anything like that. Um, but yeah, he was there at the start. Charlie Brooker, of course, who also wrote for the video game magazine PC Zone, uh, which my dear friend Will Porter uh, was also editor of at one point, and lots of uh, illustrious, fantastic writers have been through that. I will try and get Charlie on this at some point. It would be great to hear his stories working in and around video games for sure, right? Second point of order, we when we were talking about Street Fighter 2 and the fact that um, Paul mentioned that Mike Tyson was the basis of the character who is known as Balrog, and he he alluded to the fact that there was a name change around Balrog. That is correct. Balrog in the in the West refers to the sort of hunched boxer with the uh, he wears a blue top and red gloves. In Japan, where the game from where the game originates, that character is known as M Bison. And yes, in Street Fighter Two, the characters' names were switched around. 
when it came overseas. I'm not quite sure of the ins and outs of the decision for that. But for that reason, that particular character is known among Street Fighter players as Boxer to avoid confusion around the naming convention. Paul, <laughs> there was also a little confusion over which GTA Paul had chosen. In fact, when I asked Paul to pick out his five games and send them to me, before we spoke he actually sent seven games <laughs> and when we got on the call i was like i need you to narrow this down to five and he was like well these are all just games that i like and want to talk about and he sort of made me pick which two to get rid of um but anyway it seems clear to me that he was discussing gta 3 there so the third game which has always been also been picked by a couple of previous guests including of course charles cecil the creator of broken sword so yeah, GTA 3, That's uh, now I think that puts it in second place after Disco Elysium as the most picked game on my perfect console to date. As you heard in our discussion there, Paul is about to start a run at Edinburgh. In fact, he begins the day after this comes out. So from the 2nd to the 28th of August 2023, if you're listening to this in the future... Uh, he's bringing his show family-friendly comedian to Edinburgh Fringe. It's a one-hour-long show, starts at 9.40pm every night at Pleasance Cabaret Bar. Uh, if you want to buy tickets uh, or read more information, visit www.paulchowdhury.com. And uh, there you can not only buy tickets, but see links to all of the wonderful things that Paul has done and has put out. Uh, you should also subscribe to and listen to Paul's excellent podcast which um, I've enjoyed very much it's actually quite a um, technical podcast looking into he tends to interview comedians and it's really getting into the craft of stand-up comedy so if that interests you as it does me then uh, head along you can subscribe it's the Paul Chowdhury podcast p-u-d-c-a-s-t podcast you can write to me at myperfectconsole at gmail.com. Thank you to those of you who do. Thank you for people who have been suggesting guests or suggesting that they could come on as guests. I have really, really overbooked. We have got guests running all the way up to the end of the year now. But I am, uh, you know, please do keep emailing and asking because I'm trying to get those, um, you know, those slots in place for the new year when hopefully we'll be continuing with the podcast had an exciting email the other day i'm going to read it out to you this is from a chap called joe fazino he says hi simon i'm joe i recently joined the patreon uh, and have been listening since the dara o'brien interview joe is a gameplay engineer at unity and very kindly he's been telling he says he's been raving about the podcast blah 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 i'll get to this bit here which is super interesting so he says i actually got in touch with phil wang via twitter after hearing his episode on the podcast and the five games he chose now he's going to voice act a role on a narrative driven game i'm working on uh, i owe you some big thanks for that episode thanks so much joe how exciting my perfect console has brought together two creatives uh, to make an interesting video game project how cool so yeah we'll be i'll be um looking out for that joe please continue to let us know how that game uh, continues and of course i'll let all the my perfect console listeners know about that at the time joe is uh, also mentions in his email that he will be coming to see the podcast live in september at the wasd festival in london we're going to be uh, we're not announcing the guests yet um 
partly because it's not been finalized but it's going to be exciting anyway please come along if you head to if you just search up WASD my perfect console you'll be able to buy tickets five pounds for a ticket and also you will have a chance to go and look around the WASD games festival and see lots of exciting games that are not out yet have a chance to play them all of that stuff Lastly, if you want to support the podcast, please head to patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole and uh, yeah, get involved. You can become a supporter. You will get to see who the guests are coming up a month in advance. Uh, we have got some bonus episodes coming down the tracks. They're taking a little while to, to hit. So uh, if you're waiting for those, just hang on a little bit because uh, there's been a bit of a backlog. But yeah, you get some bonus episodes. Be figuring out some other ways to, to give you some some nice treats for to the supporters and uh yeah later on in this year you'll have a chance to vote in the my perfect console knockout competition uh, to crown the best console of the year okay i will be back again next week with a new guest with their five games and with one more perfect console till then have a great week Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.